I would draw your attention back to God's Word found in Ephesians 1 again this morning. Ephesians 1, let's read verse 15 through the end of chapter 1, verse 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Lord and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we are able to come together once again. Lord, to look to your word, Lord, to lift up our hearts and praise and in adoration of what an amazing, awesome, sovereign Lord we have. Lord, we, we rest in you here this morning that you would send the Spirit into our midst that we might hear from your word, Lord, that we might... Be fed from it here this morning. Lord, we we pray that you would give us eyes to see here this morning, Lord, that the eyes of our hearts would be opened and, and that we might receive the spirit of wisdom here this morning where we might know you more fully, that we might rest in you more. Lord, that you would just uh, enliven our hearts and our minds to dwell on these great truths that we have here in this epistle this morning, Lord. Lord, just be with those who can't be here with us this morning, Lord. May your presence be felt where they are, Lord, and may their hearts be turned to worship this morning. It's in your precious and Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, we previously uh, looked at verse 17 um, as part of this prayer that Paul had that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to his hearers the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. We looked at what that meant to know him and how that knowledge affects our lives. Not just in the big ways, not in the, you know, coming to church on Sunday and worshiping or, or thinking about that, that great and glorious day when our bodily resurrection will happen on the, the great day of the Lord when those who are dead in the Lord will rise out of their graves and, and those who are here when this happens will be gathered together with them. But... As glorious and as amazing as those things are, and we should never tire of thinking of them, on, of meditating on them, we also looked at how this affects the little things, those day-to-day things in our lives, those things that come from a knowledge of Him in every moment, every hour and every circumstance. Now, Paul, in this, in this next portion of Scripture here in Ephesians 1, 
uh, goes on to deal with some of these things, and he goes on to some more specific things. And this morning, we will attempt to deal with the end of chapter 1. We've dealt over the course of several weeks with the main body of Ephesians 1, starting with the introduction that he has in verse 1 and 2. And then the great hymn of praise in verses 3 through 14, this, this doxology that Paul breaks forth into. Uh, it's, it's in the original, for those who, who weren't here, it's in the original, one big, long, free-flowing stream of consciousness, if you will, to use a, a literary term. It's just this flow of praise, and there's no punctuation in the original. He just starts, and he can't stop with his praise for what God has done. Starting in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, through to when he is carrying this out in and through the lives of those whom he chose to put in the Son. And then in verse 15, he starts a prayer. And we will try and wrap up this section um, through, uh, through the end of the chapter here this morning. We won't go into detail in all these areas Uh, I don't feel led to cover this exhaustively with everything that is here in this passage explicitly or implicitly. Uh, If we did, we would probably still be here this time next year. Uh, That's how much is here in this first chapter of of the epistle to the Ephesians. Uh, If you're wanting to study this on your own, I would point you towards Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, His first volume of his work in Ephesians, the first volume covers the entire chapter 1 of Ephesians. Uh, He goes into great detail. Uh, He spent numerous sermons on this. And this this first volume of this series, the whole series actually, is a collection of sermons that he preached on the epistle to the Ephesians. Uh, And you can actually hear those as well. The Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust has those available to listen to, and then there are his his volumes of Ephesians that are in a book. But if you want to look at an exhaustive study of this, then that's where I would suggest you go. But as we look into our text today, uh, we'll briefly touch on verses 18 through 21, and then I hope to camp out a little bit in verses 21 through 23. And I will try not to be too long-winded, and I forgot to start my timer, so that never helps. But uh, I'll try not to be too terribly long-winded. There are some really practical things here, though, that I believe we need to listen to from God's Word and see from God's Word um, in these verses that we have here, uh, and especially in in verses 22 and 23. Uh, So beginning in Ephesians 1, verse 18 and 19, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? And we'll stop right there for a second. Here Paul is praying that God would give specific knowledge to the saints. And we talked about what that means to be saints. They're they're the called ones, the ones who are set apart. And then as he goes further in Ephesians 1, he he speaks of them as those whom God chose before the foundation of the world in eternity past. Back before God created the world, these saints are these ones whom he chose and he placed in Christ. Those whom he predestined to be adopted as sons, he tells us earlier in Ephesians 1 those whom he chose according to the purpose of his will. This is his will and his will alone that has planned this and is accomplishing this. Those who have been redeemed through his blood, through Christ's blood, the precious blood of Jesus Christ, once again, according to his purpose and according to the riches of his grace. And he prays that they might know what is the hope. Paul prays that they might know what is the hope and what are the riches of the inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness 
of His power toward us. Think about that for just a moment. God the Father who planned all of this before the foundation of the world to place a people in God the Son with a mission to redeem them, to rescue them. We talked a few weeks ago about this rescue mission. That's what this is. To rescue lost sinners so that they, the saints, might be the venue or the public display of His glorious and immeasurable power. That is, a, that is an amazing thing to just stop and ponder for just a moment. A power that is to be seen and to be known in an intimate way by those who have their eyes of their heart, the eyes of their heart enlightened by this knowledge. I remember, and you guys will have to bear with me a little bit, you know that I'm fond of Robert Murray McShane and often quote or, or use something from the memoirs and remains of Robert Murray McShane. But it's told in that book that there was a man uh, who had come to hear McShane speak there in Dundee, Scotland, St. Peter's in, in Dundee, Scotland. And as he was getting to church on a day that he described as a cold day, large snowflakes falling thick and fast, he sees a man... And as he was coming to this man, he, he recognized him as an individual that he had known a long time ago from his youth. This guy had been gone for a while. He was back to hear McShane preach. And this man was a man that he feared. A man who he knew before as, and I quote, a fierce, drunken, brutal savage. One of the sort that do actually kick and bite in their explosions of wrath. Left an impression on this man. Well, he went up to this man after seeing a, a smile on this man's face, something that was very foreign to anything he had seen in this individual before. And he asked the man, are you so-and-so? And the man replied, yes, but not the so-and-so you once knew. The writer says he then realized that he, he said it was like reading a living epistle was what it was like. It was as if he had stood beside Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus and heard the Lord speak to him. And that man told him his story, how he came here to curse God. This was often the case with McShane. He was very well known. He was referred to as the Holy McShane because of his walk with the Lord. And many times people would come to curse him as he preached or to, to, to make a scene and laugh at him. And this man had come to curse and he said he went away to pray. How he walked seven miles and never thought the journey long. Seven miles every time the doors of the church were opened for the preaching of the gospel. He went on to inquire of others about this man and found that he was a changed man. He was a different man. The immeasurable greatness of the power of God had been on display as it worked in and through this man. He lived out the truth of 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. This man, this one that he knew to be a fierce, drunken savage, was a new man. He, like all who have been rescued from sin by the immeasurable power, the might, the greatness of God, has been made into a new creation. Well, what is it in particular that we are to understand about this power? It's immeasurable, yes. 
It's a great might, yes. But then he tells us something else about this power, this might that he worked in Christ, God the Son, when he raised him from the dead. And when he ascended into heaven to take his seat on the throne at the right hand, God the Son seated on the right hand of God the Father in heavenly places. Where he is far above all rule, our text tells us, there is none who supersede or can overrule him. He's far above all authority. There is no one who can command him or say to him, what, has, what have you done? He's above all power and dominion. There is none who can bind him, none who can overwhelm him, none who can defeat him. Satan tried, Rome tried, the Jews tried, and they crucified him and the, and the grave couldn't hold him. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is above every name. There, there is none who can compete with his honor. None who can outshine his glory. And all these things are not only for this age, the age in which we live, but for their, they're also for the age that is to come. The final age. The end. When there's made a new heaven and a new earth. And we dwell with him for eternity. This will be the case in this age and the age to come. And our text tells us that he has all things under his feet. Not only is his place, his glory, his name far above all others, but God the Father has placed all things under the feet of the Son. There is nothing that is outside his control or outside his sovereign authority. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, a passage that we quote quite often, says, for by him all things were created. So he is the creator of all things. God the Son is the creator of all things. He is that word that was spoken that said, let there be light. He is the creator. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rules or authority. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That sounds to me like God the Father has placed all things under the feet of God the Son. I kind of feel like that guy in that, that commercial, but wait, there's more. I don't remember that guy's name. I think he's dead now. But wait, there is more. And he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. Ephesians 1, through 23. He is the head of the church, which is his body. There are many ways in which the union of the relationship of Christ to the church and the church to Christ are shown in Scripture. Many ways in which it's described. Uh, we'll look at four of these briefly as each points us as a picture to the reality of that union and the way that union is, is structured. First, it, the scripture compares this union to a marriage. Ephesians 5, 29 through 32 says, <clears throat> For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It needs to be read every day all over society right now. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul... Later on in our epistle to the Ephesians here, he says this mystery is profound. At the tail end of what we just read. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So this relationship, this union, in one way is described in, in Scripture as a marriage. 
Christ being the husband and the church being the bride. Paul tells us that it's a profound mystery. That it's, but it's, it's something that he seeks his readers to understand here. And obviously, the same as, as our text here this morning from the first chapter of Ephesians is something about Christ being the head of the church who is his body is something that may be a little hard to understand on the surface. And I, I think we would do well to remember who the audience was here for most of this epistle. A lot of them were slaves and uneducated. But Paul doesn't shy away from telling them something that may be difficult for them to understand. So what does he do? He paints it in a picture like marriage so that they might better understand what it is that Christ is to his church. Well, second, we find Scripture describing this union as a vine or a tree in its branches. In Romans eleven seventeen, we read from Paul again, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Christ himself uses this analogy in John 15, 4 through 6, for his relationship with his people. John 15, 4 through 6. He says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. This was something that was used as an analogy that almost everyone in this day, in this agricultural society in which they lived, would understand. They would understand the concept of a tree and its branches or the vine and its branches. Something that is hard to contemplate, hard to understand about the union, the relationship between Christ and the church, Paul in, in Romans and Christ himself in John is making use of an analogy that they could understand. When Christ does a work in an individual and becomes a, the head, the, 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 the tree or the vine, when he becomes the husband to the church, he is the source of its life. He is the source of what feeds and maintains the branch as it is united to the vine. If it is severed, what did Christ say? It withers. It has no life. The branch is incapable of doing anything on its own. Well, third, this union is compared to a house or a building. In 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5, he says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And from our epistle in, to the Ephesians, later on, and we'll get to this soon, in Ephesians 2, 20 through 21, built on the, uh, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This union between Christ and His church, Christ and His people, being viewed as a building upon which a foundation is laid, and that foundation is laid according to what? The cornerstone. The chief cornerstone. Jesus Christ. Fourth is what we find here in our text this morning. In verse 22 and 23. 
Christ is the head over all things to the church, which is his body. We earlier just quoted Ephesians 5, 29 through 32. And in that, verse 29 and 30 says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. We are members of his body. He is the head. 1 Corinthians 6.15 tells us, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And Colossians 2.19 says, And not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together, through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Being joined to the source of life is what causes us to grow, what gives us life. The body being nourished and knit together from the head, which is according to our text here this morning, Jesus Christ. In our text here from Ephesians, we have this picture, this analogy, so that we can better understand this this mysterious union between Christ and the church. Christ being the head of the body, which is the church, and each part of the body, the hands, the feet, the arms, all of the other parts are joined to the head from which it receives life and direction. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he, when he deals with this and his exposition of this, talks about the fact that it, 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 the body is an amazing thing. And he, he was a doctor before he... The doctor wasn't a doctorate of theology. The doctor was a medical doctor. Uh, there at Bart's in, in London. And he understood these, these things about the body, probably dissected a body during his, his uh, education there. And I've had the benefit when I was in high school of going down with medical students at the University of Charleston in, uh, in South Carolina and at Columbia and taking part in a human body dissection. And it is unbelievable the way the body is fitted together. You take your finger, your arms, and this is something that Lloyd-Jones puts out. Where does it, where does it actually end and where does it start? Where does my finger start on my palm? There's no discernible. This is the way that our bodies are knit together. Everything joined together in such a way that it becomes part of a whole. It's not individual. And this is what the Lord does with His people to bring them together to be the body under which He is the head. The foot isn't separated from the leg, isn't separated from the torso, isn't separated from the arms, isn't separate from the hands. It's all together. It is one body. And he also brings out in his exposition of this that it is amazing how the Holy Spirit inspired all of this to be a picture in a time when the understanding of what the head does was so much more elementary than what we know today. We now understand what the head does for the body. Every impulse, every movement, every direction comes from where? It comes from the head. Every autonomic function in the body comes from the head. Without the head, there is no direction. There is no life. When the brain, the head, ceases to function, life ceases. You can remove an arm, you can remove a leg, and the body can still live. But if you remove the head, everything dies. This is the relationship pictured for us 
of Christ being the head of the body, which is the church. It's easy when we get to this part of this this first chapter here to think that Paul has somewhat turned aside to the main theme that he is, he is talking about here, this, this power, this immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe, this working of His great might. It's easy to think for a second, Paul has kind of just stepped aside for a minute and said something else. But Paul has not left the discussion of the power and the might of God that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. This is not Paul moving on. In fact, this is actually the substance of the rest of the epistle to the Ephesians. It is because of our union to Christ our head that we can take part and we can understand and we can know the greatness of His power and His might. Paul is continuing on in this consideration of this resurrection power and might even in the picture of Christ as the head of the church, who's His body. Let's consider for just a moment who the author of this epistle is. Inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words. Let's look at the description that our writer, Paul, gives of himself as he addressed the Jews in Acts 22. Turn with me there if you will. Acts 22. Acts 22, 1 through 5. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they they became even more quiet. And he said, so this is Paul's description of himself. I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the laws of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are on this day. Then look what he says. He says, I persecuted this way to death. (laughs) Who is this way? This is the church. This is the body of Christ. The people of the way. The people who followed the way of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I persecuted these people. I persecuted the body of Christ to death. Binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness, from them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. He was given letters. He was given authority, Saul, to go out and to bind these Christians, these members of the body of Christ, and to bring them back to Jerusalem to be put in prison and punished. Here we see Paul describing himself as a persecutor of the church a persecutor of the body of Christ. He was, as he described himself and others to be in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we read, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh and carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like all the rest of mankind. Paul is saying that he... And you and I were not members of the body. We were dead. We were separate. We were dead in trespasses and sins. And he says, I was even a chief prosecutor 
of those who were joined together under the head as the body of Christ. Well, what happened then that Paul could have written and desired that others may know the power and might of God displayed by uniting the people of God to Christ as the head of the body? Well, if we go back to Acts 22, we will read in verse 6, As I was on my way, Paul says, and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me, Paul says, saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness from him, to every one of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. Call, Paul, was one of those called before the foundation of the world that we read about in Ephesians 1. He was one of those chosen before the foundation of the world, adopted, redeemed, Rescued from the power of sin, a recipient of the spirit of wisdom that we read about in Ephesians 1, and of revelation and of the knowledge of God and of His power and might, the resurrection power that can make a dead sinner alive and joined to the body of Christ. He experienced this miraculous work of joining that which was dead, now made alive, to the body of Christ. Joining them to the head to receive life and direction from that head, which is Christ. This is the picture we find way back in the Old Testament. Way back in a slightly different form And we read about it as many bodies, but it's the same thing as the one body of Christ. This is one of my favorite passages and one that we reflect on a lot because I think there's a lot of significance in it. If you turn to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, that's Ezekiel, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy, over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord." So I prophesied, Ezekiel said, and I was commanded, as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. 
Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. This is the picture of resurrection power. The power and might of our God in uniting us as a body underneath the head, which is Jesus Christ. This is miraculous power. This is creation power. This is life-giving power. Christ is making His body out of a bunch of dead bones. Those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. And Ezekiel tells us, behold, they were very dry. Giving them life. Breathing into them the Spirit. Uniting them to Him through His death, burial, and resurrection. What are the benefits of this union? It would do us well to daily contemplate the benefits of our union to Jesus Christ. First, communion with Christ. Communion with Him. Brothers and sisters, dwell on the truth that you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and have been made into, joined into, grafted into the body of Jesus Christ. And by that, you have communion with the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You want to search out and better understand the unsearchable riches, riches and, and goodness of God? Then meditate on the fact that you and I were wretched and sinful rebels to God. Every single one of us. Alienated from Him, and you are now united to Christ as the head. The same thing that took place in the life of Saul of Tarsus is the same thing that takes place in the life of every one of the redeemed of the Lord. That is a truth that will strengthen you and give you great liberty to live without fear, knowing you are joined to an eternal head, Jesus Christ who has been placed far above, according to our text, all rule and authority and power and dominion. <clears throat> the Christian, the member of the body of Christ, can enter any battle and oppose any false doctrine, stand against any enemy and wickedness, knowing that you are a member of the body of Jesus Christ and He is your head. Second, by unite, being united to Him, we are beneficiaries of His benefits. One of the commentators <clears throat> stated that if the head is crowned, is the body not also crowned? If the head is crowned, is the body not also crowned? You didn't earn it, but you're joined to Him. Who is the head? And you receive the blessing, as if you yourself were crowned. Jesus said in John 17.10 to, to God the Father when He's praying, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. That which belongs to Christ, that which is His body, belongs to the Father. And we are His and we are the fathers. We have sonship by being united to Him. Isn't that what our previous part of our text in Ephesians 1 tells us? We're adopted as sons. Christ's sacrifice on the cross, which satisfied the Father, and His wrath towards the sin that we committed, His satisfaction became ours by union with Him. By union with Him, our sins have been atoned for. There is satisfaction for the wrath of God for our sins because we are united to Christ. 
if you're not united to Christ, the wrath of God still abides on you. But being united to Christ, that's done away with. His perfect obedience to the law becomes ours. Something we could never do, but it becomes ours. His glory becomes ours. John 17, 22, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one as we are one. Uniting us together in Christ. As the body of Christ. Romans 8, 17, And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. All of His glories become ours by, united, by our united state with Christ. The Spirit of Christ is given to us. Romans 8, 9-11 through 11, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, and anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And the power that exists in Him as our head is given to us in the body. Psalm 27.1 The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Matthew 11.28-30 says, Come to me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know what a yoke is for? A yoke is for work. How's that easy? How's that light? Why is his yoke easy and his burden light? It's because he is the power. He is the force. He is the strength. The power which is doing the work. And that is a benefit that we receive by being united to Him. Colossians 1.29 is the outworking of this idea. When Paul says in Colossians 1.29, For this I toil, for this I toil, struggling with all His energy. Isn't that an amazing verse? Paul says, for this, I, I'm working hard. I'm working hard. I'm expending a lot of energy, but it's His energy, which He powerfully works within me. It isn't Paul's energy or power or might. It is Christ the head working through Paul as a member of the body of Christ. Thirdly, let's just sum this up by saying all the benefits of this union is that the fullness of Christ belongs to the body. John 1.6 says, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. From His fullness we all have received Finally, let's take a brief, brief look at another thing that comes out of, of Christ being the head of the body. We are able to know and see Christ, who He is, and rest in His will and His direction in our lives no matter what is going on around us. No matter what the world is pushing for or attempting to do to us, we have confidence in Jesus Christ, our head, to lead us where He wants us to go. He is our head, 
And as the body, we are to do what He tells us to do and rest in all the benefits of His right and authority and power to rule and accomplish what He wills to rule and accomplish. Do you, this morning, rest in the one to whom you have been joined? The one who is the head over all things of the body, to whom you have been made alive and grafted into. Do you rest in him this morning? Turn with me real quick. Won't spend much time here. To Revelation. Two and three. And we're not going to read this. We've, we've gone through this before, but as a reminder, I want you to look at something. I want you to look at this and see Christ reminding the members of the body. He's reminding them in each of these letters, these seven letters, each one of them starts with the reminder of who our head is, who Christ is. To the Ephesians, he says, the word of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is the one who places his churches where he will. This is the one who holds his ministers in his hand. This is our head. To the church in Smyrna, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. This is the head of the church, Jesus Christ. To the church in Pergamum, the words of Him who has a sharp two-edged sword. To the church in Thyatira, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. To the church in Sardis, the words of Him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He has the fullness of the Spirit of God to pour out upon His body, the church, in great measure. We talked last week a little bit about revival. What is, the re what is revival? It's the outpouring of God's Spirit. He's the one who issues forth that Spirit. To the church in Philadelphia, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut. If God, using the body, the church, opens a door to proclaim the gospel, no one will ever shut that door. And conversely, if He shuts the door, no one's going to open it. To the church in Laodicea, the words of the Amen. The so be it. The it is so. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Sometime look at what He reminds the body. That He knows what the body is doing. Every one of these letters, I know. I know, Christ says. I know of your trials and your tribulations. I know of your poverty. I know where you dwell. The head knows what the body is doing. And then he counsels and directs them as the head would direct the body. And then he makes promises to them, benefits that they have by being united to Him. In closing, we must follow our head. Where the head goes, the body goes. It's much like the picture we have in the Old Testament of the, of the children of Israel as they were coming out of Egypt. They were led by a cloud of pillar by day, excuse me, a pillar of cloud by day, and a, and a uh, pillar of fire by night. That's the way we, as the body, are to be led by our head. Where the head goes, the church should always follow. We, as the body, don't have the right or the authority to do anything but what our head directs us to do. 
Look what He's done for us. He's made us alive. He's freed us from the power of sin. He's joined us to Him. He's given us this this inheritance undefiled that fadeth not away that we have by being joined to Him. And all of this, every bit of this is eternal. It's not what our inheritance is here on earth. It's not what we can amass during our brief lifetime here. These things are eternal. We have no right to rebel against the one who has done all of this for us. And in love and gratitude, our response should always be to do that which our head bids us to do. Can you imagine telling your hand to do something and it rebels against you? Dad can a little bit. Disease, sin has so infected our lives and our bodies that there are diseases, there are sicknesses, Parkinson's, ALS, MS. Grace's sister out there in Montana, there's times she, she tells her body, you know, get up, step, sit up, and it just can't do it. There are those who suffer with things like that. That the body cannot rightly receive direction from the brain and act on its own or fails to act. But this is not our right as the body of Christ. Never. He has made us alive and we have clear direction from Him through His Word in all matters of faith and practice. We are to follow the head, go where the head tells us to, teach and preach what our head tells us to. Christ has given us what we are to uphold, what we are to proclaim, what we are to preach, and what we're to teach. And far be it from us to do something different. Well, if there are some that are hearing this this morning, and it's one of the benefits of recording these and posting on something like Sermon Audio. There's people all over the world that listen to these messages, some in countries who are not Christian by any means. And they're able to get on and listen to broadcasts where the truth is proclaimed. But if there are those that are hearing this this morning and don't have union with Christ, if you've not been transplanted and grafted in to the body of Christ, I would exhort you not to fall into despair and hopelessness. Despair of yourself. Have no hope in yourself. But don't think that there's not hope. He made Paul, did we not look at this earlier? He made Paul a persecutor of the church, alive, and joined him to the body. He made David a murderer, alive, and joined him to the body. He made that man standing in the snow outside of McShane's church who was a fierce, drunken, brutal savage alive and joined to the body of Christ. He made me a dead blasphemer alienated from Him following the prince of the power of the air following after the lusts of the flesh a child of wrath alive and joined to Him and a member of the body of Jesus Christ. That I might live under Christ my head. Look to Him. Seek after Him. Bow yourself at the foot of the cross and rest in what He can and is accomplishing through His Word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank You that we have been united to Your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank You that You have given life. You've made that which is dead alive and joined to You. Lord, the benefits and the blessings and the grace and the mercy that is bestowed upon Your people to be the body of Christ. Lord, we stand in awe of it. Lord, help us to just meditate on it and, and, and just daily 
daily recall these things, Lord, and live in thankfulness and gratitude. Lord, and as always, we pray that this would cause us to to share with others your truth. Lord, your truth of who we are apart from you and who we are when we're united to you. Lord, bless your word. In your name we pray. Amen.